Thrive, a show about balancing work, community, and creativity. And community can mean anything in this context. It's the work you put in, the relationships that you have. In these times, I am adding to that homeschooling, and my guests this fall will be talking about how they've managed their time and their sanity working. All of them have worked while they homeschooled, and many of them are single parents. They are on all quadrants of economic spectrums and as many diverse voices as I can so that we can really hear from people doing the work of making a family stronger during these times. It will come as no surprise to anyone that I am myself a former homeschooler. My name is Janet McKenna-Lowry. I'm your host. And my kids were also in school. And one of the things I think homeschoolers can really give us as a gift this fall is the concept of an option. The idea of sitting in front of a screen for a child, and I'm going to expand that to an adult, sitting in front of a screen for hours every day, the idea that that is an optimum or even a reasonable way for the human brain to learn has never been proven to be true. And I think the opposite, in my experience, has been the case. And I run educational programs. I've run schools. My own kids were at home and at school. And of course, I've experienced training. It's exhausting to try to learn like this. And I've got to ask, why are we doing it? And as part of that question, why are we doing it? Really, the bigger question is, what else is there? And in that place, I feel like I and my guests are uniquely qualified to pass on information about. This could be so much easier. It could be a time where kids really find a place of trust and importance and meaning in their lives that just sitting in front of a screen and passively taking in hopefully some information and then giving it back. I don't know. That's having experienced that and having experienced what kid led learning looks like and how exciting it is and how meaningful it is and how great the kids turn out and how strong the families turn out. I just can't see settling for what feels like kind of a wonder bread experience in the very best of times and right now feels like plastic little tykes food. But in any case, what I wanted to talk about this morning was perfectionism and Instagram homeschooling. So one of the things that stops people from the idea that they could create an educational experience or an educational environment for their kids and that that would count as school is this idea that you have to be perfect. This is one of those great learning pieces as a homeschooling parent. I learned more homeschooling than I did in any any school experience, and that goes from K-12 to through college and even my master's program, although I learned a lot about myself in that. But being a homeschool parent was the deepest and most fulfilling of my educational experiences. And one of the reasons for that was the way that it showed me that my own perfectionism 
wasn't making anything better. It was making everybody worse and making me worse. And that it was utterly unnecessary. And the sooner I could get over it, the better I would be. And that's a long journey. I, too, grew up... I think that schools foster uh, false perfectionism, I think. Right? They say they're holding you to high standards. Parents say they're holding you to high standards. Bosses say they're holding you to high standards. But when you try to get a hold of what those standards are, too often they're not explicit, agreed-upon, reachable standards. Too often they are, please me, I'm getting a hit off of your misery, and I'll come back for more. And that isn't anything that all the perfectionism in the world can't fill a hole that deep. Perfectionism is also a fear-based response in ourselves to a lot of, I think, attachment trauma, quite frankly. Uh, Certainly early trauma. The idea that if only you could get this better, everyone would love you. If only you could get this better, everyone would appreciate you. If only you could get this better, the future would work out for you. If only you could get this better, your kids would love you forever. And that on some level, your failure to do this means you are unlovable. This is pretty deep level stuff, and it has nothing to do with your kids, and it has nothing to do with other people. It has everything to do with how you perceive yourself. And if you can change that, and of course you can change it, but if you're in a place, psychologically, if you're in a place in your heart that you can change this, the other things will fall, will put themselves into place. One of the ways that people beat themselves up about the potential to homeschool, the possibility to homeschool, is this fundamental, I am not good enough. There is something wrong with me. And it can be very easy to fall into that if we go research homeschooling and look for homeschooling and we find things like Instagram where the person taking a photograph, just as if they were doing one of those real world versus, you know, what it looks like backstage. Those are always a lot of fun to see. People who want to perform homeschooling for the cameras, people who want to perform this perfect life for the cameras, do not have a perfect life. And in fact, It's an indication that they are distorting themselves somehow to have to perform, to have to show everyone that it's okay, that they're lovable. And in this particular case, it gets a little bit, the dynamic gets a little bit more troublesome because they're also requiring and requesting their children to perform this perfect homeschooling. A lot of times it'll almost look like stock photos. They will have children at a table and a parent is teaching. And anybody who has a life that doesn't quite look like that is going to feel like they should opt out, that this is not for them. They don't look like that. They don't feel like that. And on some level, I think we all know that I could come in with five delightful 
guise and rework everything about your clothes, your spaces, your kids' clothes, everything about that I could do, your hair, your makeup, and we could replicate that same photo shoot and everyone would think that of you and you would know yourself to be a fraud because it's not like that every day. And if we tried to replicate that every day or two or three, just imagine for a second the level of control and repression you have to have to live in a photo shoot. Learning is going on because you can't stop it, but the learning that's going on is no different than really any other kind of programming. It's, it's not deep. It's not student-led. It's not student-based. It's not there for those kids. Instagram and Instagram sort of shiny, happy, shiny families, Instagram homeschooling perform, uh, performances, they're not there for the kids. Those are there for the parents as sure as any dance mom isn't about kids who love to dance. We know this on some level, but going there feeds this monster of our own insecurity and gives us an out. It gives us an excuse to not do something risky and deep loving, which is to let the kids expand how they grow in a partnership with us as a family. And the fear is real. And the fear is something to pay attention to. But it's also important to understand that it is fear. If we look with relief at some of those presentations and we think, oh, good, it really isn't for me. That is a message we made up for ourselves based on no evidence at all. And I think one of the most interesting things about this and about creating a learning environment for kids and trusting them that they will learn and trusting that education will happen and that there is nothing that will harm them as long as we are attentive and working with them toward an agreed set of goals. I think that trusting kids to learn is trust that we are good enough and one of the most interesting things about this, the idea that the only place a person learns is in school, I don't think that was ever true, but the idea that this is true in the age of the internet is especially not true. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to be good enough. Good enough is good enough. Having kids see us in our vulnerability, having kids see us screw up and make effective, true three-part apologies is going to be millions of times more instructive and more useful to them in a successful life than learning this week their threes times tables. They'll get the threes times tables. As long as it's meaningful, as long as it's getting them to something. And that's where, that's where we come in, honestly. For most ages, we come in at the place where it's important to say, well, if you want to know more about this, what are some steps you can take? And 
the times tables may be one of it. And maybe the times tables is one of those things you just decide that's what you're going to use your focus time with the kids. My focus time with my kids was never more than three hours a day and rarely three hours a day. It was two hours a day most of the time. But there are years, and they will tell you, that I bribed them to learn the times tables during those three hours. I knew it was a really useful tool to have and that one of the quickest ways to get the tool is M&Ms and flashcards. Who needs to make anyone do anything if there's a jar full of M&Ms? We did do it as a game. We agreed we would do it as a game. They trusted me that I said it was a pretty useful thing to know and a useful skill. And here's the other thing about perfectionism. I was still operating from a place of fear. I looked at my kids and I thought, how could you not? Like, you can't, you can't go into fifth grade not knowing all your times. I, I operated from that place of fear. And they indulged me and we learned it as a game. We had a lot of fun together. It was, it was ridiculous. It probably was a waste of both of our times, both of our focus times. But it was also, in the grand scheme of things, pretty harmless because I've struggled with perfectionism. I also wanted to prove to the world that my kids were learning. I also stood on the beach with relatives who would do nothing but brag about their kids' accomplishments, and I would try to not do my own brags, like my own... Christmas letter full of bragging, but, but to sort of stand up for them. But I also wanted to, you know, prove that they were doing something that's performing monkeyism. That's that same performatism that's happening on Instagram. And had Instagram been a big thing at that point, I would have been tempted to set everybody up and take pictures and prove to the world that I was lovable, that I wasn't screwing up, that the time I spent was worthwhile, that my kids were lovable, but I did, like, my kids are lovable. I love my kids. So that was less of a thing I wanted to prove than to prove that I was a good mother. And the question has to be, who am I proving that to? And will they ever accept this proof? Is there ever enough I can do that lets them accept this proof? And the answer is, if we really look inside and we sit there and meditate on this, no. Because the only person I have to prove it to is myself. The kids love you. All you can do is screw that up. And if you screw that up, all you can do is repair that relationship or not. So that's just some reflections on perfectionism. I feel very deeply about it. I feel like I struggled with it. And I hear it from clients and the community at large all the time. That I can't do this. It'll screw up my kids. I can't do this because I'm not a teacher. I can't do this because I'm not enough. I can't do this because all of that screams out to me of perfectionism. All of that screams out I am not enough-ism. But if you're not enough, who is? No one. No one is. And one of the great joys of trusting that learning will happen and doing the work with your kids of here are what the state requires. Here are what our family culture would like. How are we going to work to this? What are your thoughts? 
if you can imagine for a minute being 10 or 11 years old and having your main adult talk to you like that, that is what makes a relationship strong. And then imagine for a minute being that same 11-year-old and having your main adult let you become the driver of your own learner, honored the fact that what you love best in the world is ballet and that you're going to be given unfettered access to ballet as long as you can cover the subjects that you've agreed upon that a reasonably educated person has. Math, what about tempo? How do the steps work? How does choreography? Imagine, imagine as an adult being given what amounts to a sabbatical year. And here's the beauty of it all. This is what I wanted to say before and I derailed. The beauty of it all is give it a try. There is no downside to giving it a try. There is nothing to risk by giving this a try and checking back in and seeing if it works. In fact, that is one of the optimum ways to live our lives. We get anticipate around 80 years on this planet. We can try out anything for three months at a time. I'm sure we could figure out lots of things that you shouldn't, you know, should probably try shooting your foot off for three months at a time. But as far as things that we would like to do, things that are worth doing, things that would make us deeper, more satisfied, more fulfilled people, we can try those things. We can experiment with those things for three months. Three months this year will bring us into a pandemic winter where we're shut down anyway. What do you have to lose? Next up is going to be part two of my talk with Sarah Wall. She's a single mom, entrepreneur, and a homeschooler of six strong young women. And she's going to share a lot of insight and a ton of resources that I will put in the show notes. And we found an introduction to entrepreneurship for 10 to 12 year olds. Oh, so cool. I bought a kit, like I bought a spot for her and put her on. And uh, one thing we didn't realize is it came with a subscription to a really interesting program online called Kibloom. Fascinating. Love it. I'm like, I want to use this with some of my clients, but. What's it called? Kibloom? Kibloom. It's K-E-B-L-O-O-M. Okay. It's for kids, but it basically walks them through the step of creating a business plan. Oh, wow. It's so awesome. So she's 10 years old and she's like, mom, when can I launch my business? And I go, um, um, like you're 10. You really can't, like, can't launch a business. I'm like, I had to stop and think. I'm like, why can't she launch a business at 10? Why? I'm like, how about you wait till, you know, take the time to, figure out what you're doing first then we'll talk about launching it she's like oh okay so by the time I'm 12 Mm -hmm. if you think it'll take you two years you go for it 
I'm I'm fully expecting that she'll be ready by the end of the year. I mean, she's just that kind of kid, but yeah, you never yeah. know. You never know. <laughs> um, this is the same child that started violin lessons in April of last year, and within the first four months, my violin te- her violin teacher came to me and goes, "Yeah, she's learned more in the last four months than I teach the average student in a year." <laughs> well, I go okay. So that's sure. an interesting thing, and that's something that I observed. It's also something I've heard from other homeschool guests of mine: is when a kid is interested in something, really interested in something they're going to dive in and maybe they can't sustain that deep, deep interest, or maybe they're the kind of kid who learns enough up to a point, feels satisfied with it, and then is looking for something else. Like, And no judgment, that's fine. But a lot of times they learn stuff so much faster that you have to ask yourself, like, why did I get a whole book on this? I mean, we could have just done, you know, you got it. You got there. You mastered it we're done. And I still have two months left. So what do you want to be looking at now? Right. Flexibility is both a huge, huge bonus to homeschooling, but also probably is the key to homeschooling success. I mean, not trying to box learning into the framework of four walls and a teacher and a desk. I mean, learning can be so much bigger than that. So much wider than that. That's something that I've really had to learn with my special needs daughter because she doesn't learn traditionally, because one of her biggest struggles is with language and understanding and communicating language. We really had to get her really untraditional ways of, you know, learning how to learning how to do basic things like read, like understand information. And I love how well she has taken this on because she's now writing and she is writing where she's actually, she, she wrote a letter that I'll be publishing to soon. I have her permission to do it, Mm. which is basically a letter to the government on COVID-19 and it had me in tears. I mean, so I'm really excited to be able to post this. Um, I just have to be able to to put it up on, I want to get a good picture of her to put it up and I need to get her permission for the picture. So, Mm. because I'd never published anything for my children without their permission and consent. Right. It's not my life. It's theirs. And posting it on the internet is forever. Yeah. Never, nothing of my children. You know, I might write my experience with theirs, but I always run it by them to make sure that they're okay with me sharing that info. Yeah. And then I always check back too, because this is kind of key. If you're going to publish anything about your children, check back in two years. Oh, and nice. see if they're okay with, with that still being on there because they can change, mm-hmm. right? And so there's a couple of posts that are on my blog that I need to edit now because there's a couple of things in there that my daughter's no longer comfortable with me sharing. Yeah, and so, yeah, and it locks them into something that they've perhaps yeah. outgrown or, you know, and, and now they're sort of seen. I might have said things like that before. In fact, it's funny because mine haven't necessarily been written blogs but some of the narratives I talk about, and, and, you know, a lot of it's my experience and stuff, and as they're all adults now, and occasionally, you know, they've said, I don't particularly like being remembered at, like, in that way at that time, because I was really struggling with something, and I feel like it just sort of freezes some of my worst moments in a way that then I then I changed. And it was like, yeah, I mean, it's really important, and we kind of talked about, like, you know, is there a way to honor that struggle and that 
sort of progression and and then talk about it? Or would you rather I just ditched it completely and and really minimize that? And it's been it's been great to talk about it. Well, I mean, the Internet turns, you know, the entire globe into a small town, right? Mm -hmm. I grew up in a small town. And I mean, the small town if you remember, if you, if you messed up, the neighbors knew and you never got rid of that. Mm. Like those stories would be told about you when you're, I, I, I go back to visit and there are stories about my childhood that are still coming up yeah. and it's been 25 years. <laughs> like I'm like, people let it go already. <laughs> but I mean, these are, I, these are the senior citizens and they're used to thinking this way. And so we, the internet has turned all of us into this because you're not allowed to change anymore. The way you are is the way you are. And now we call, if you want to change a focus, we call it rebranding. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this lately because of the way that it taps into brain science and the way we have like these, we have these biases, right? We tend to take in information quicker than we let it go. We develop habits and then getting rid of that habit or changing that habit is much is a much slower thing but the frequency of noticing that a kid has changed has these like it's funny we worry so much about the wrong things this is something to worry about where you've locked a kid into what you we I should say you we as parents decide is a personality trait or like, or is a trigger. And and the one I remember is um, one of my kids for a number of years in her adolescence tended to get really, she'd perseverate, she'd rethink things that happened during the day, even though they had been resolved, she would rethink them for a while at bedtime. So I would have fallen asleep and she'd come in and shake my foot and want to relitigate these things. And it would be like, we, we literally put this to bed four hours ago. And it used to be a thing that she did. And of course, I didn't like being woken up and my own reactions weren't great. I had a lot to learn. And there was a point where I remember her doing it. And my first thought was, I thought we were done with this. I thought we were beyond this. And the next morning when I had some time to rest, I actually ended up taking her out to coffee and saying, I've got to acknowledge that we have gone beyond this. Like you haven't done this for months and months. You used to do it like a lot of times in a week and then it got less frequent. But but boy, when she came back that night, I felt like, oh my God, we're back here again at this pattern that we had broken. And I remember thinking, I've got to give you the grace to get out of there. Like I've got to notice the frequency is not there anymore. That's mine to notice. <laughs> You're... <laughs> You're moving out of it. Yay! <laughs> it is It is funny how our kids grow and then change. And then all of a sudden we're like, okay, what it, What just happened here? What happened to my little, you know, I, I struggle a lot with that with my kids as they're growing into preteen and the teen years. Mm. And that process of letting go and that process, I mean, I'm so used to needing to know for their own safety, what they were doing, where they were at any given moment. Yeah. And now being okay with the fact that, you know, my, my 10 year old and my 12 year old might be outside playing in the backyard and I'm not directly there. 
and they're making their own decisions and they're, you know, deciding what they're going to do with their time. And they, and trusting the fact that I have trained them on acceptable behavior and on safe play. And I mean, it's really, it's about trusting myself. Did I do do a good enough job? Yeah. (laughs) No, yet. That still remains to be seen. And, uh, you know, making sure that I'm not hovering. Yeah. Giving room for them to be themselves. Right. Right. And that's, it's such a struggle sometimes because yeah. I want to smother them. <laughs> I don't want to mother. I want to smother. Well, that's another so one that's of those frequencies, it. right? Where you're needed so hard for so long. And then you have to like, it's, I think that's the difficulty. The difficulty is really like, is, is the phasing out of something I think is a lot more difficult than we give it credit for. And I also, there's a great book, um, by a guy who's really a marketer, but he's like, he's got a lot of other stuff going on. I like him a lot. I've heard conflicting opinions about him, but I personally like him. His name is Seth Godin, G-O-D-I-N. And he did a book called The Learning Dip. And it talks a lot about uh, a phenomenon that happens a lot of times with the way that we learn, which is when we're just before mastery, we're bad at things. Like we really suck. So we've gotten better and better and better and better then we suck. And a lot of times that's the point where we either give up or others give up on us. But the fact that we were approaching mastery and then went down meant it was a learning dip. And what we really should be doing is celebrating it because it shows that we've just, we're just on the cusp of truly getting it, mastering it and moving to a different level. But because of this dip, and this happens all the time in these phases, because of this dip, we're like, oh, that's it. I, I'm not meant for this. Or, oh, we're back here again. If you're just joining us, this is Working Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing life, work, and community. And my guest today is Sarah Wall, who's talking about her extraordinary life as a single mother of six daughters, homeschooler, and entrepreneur. Humans really don't like change. We really, yeah. really struggle with change. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that I do have going for me is that I went through so many changes so quickly that I've gotten really comfortable with things changing so that now that I'm in a more stable situation I'm actually much more uncomfortable because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I used to things changing so I tend to work out a lot of my thoughts and my you know struggles on blog posts now mm. so I recently wrote a post on you know how my kids became so independent and what did I do to make them independent and working it through on paper made me realize that you know what the parenting philosophy I've followed all along is actually one I really, really like. And I'm kind of glad I chose that. Mm, what's and that? now I can be much more deliberate about it. Yeah, so talk about that. So what I did, and this is honestly, this was unconscious, but it, it was it was a result of some observation. I guess this is why one of the, the perks of being a single parent is there really isn't a distraction. Mm. So when my oldest was little and I was just watching her because I didn't have anybody else I was talking to. It was just me and her. I would be watching her and I would teach her something, right? Like just something small, just to make it a little bit easier for her to do something. But sometimes that would be a, a, no, this is how you say it. No, this is how you do it. And then let her go and do it. Yeah. 
And I found out that after I taught her, sometimes we needed to go hand over hand. Sometimes she needed to repeat me. Hmm. And I was training, getting those habits in. And then there was a period where as she grew and as my girls grew, where I had to do a lot, not so much hands-on, but I had to be kind of right beside them hmm. and giving those, giving them those reminders this is how you do it. Don't forget you have to do this and don't forget you have to do this. Mm. That's the coaching part. Mm, yeah. And now that we're going into those teen years and those those older years, especially with my oldest, there's just a lot of where I have to let go and I have to give her room to go and do it herself. And this is the key part. Let the consequences of her actions actually fall on her, not provide the umbrella. Yeah. Right? And that's the empowerment phase. And so it's teaching and training and coaching and then empowering them. Sometimes as parents, I find that I want to skip the teaching and training and I just want to do the coaching part because <laughs> I'm too busy to do the teaching and training. And then we all get frustrated because they have no idea what I'm talking about while I'm trying to coach them to do something because I never actually taught them how to do it. Right. Well, that's and sometimes it's a case of I want to train them on how to do it. But we're both frustrated because I'm trying to, I'm assuming they already know mm. and they don't even know. I never did the basics. Yeah. And, and it's realizing where we are. And then sometimes it's, no, I want to teach them. And I've forgotten that, no, we've taught and we've trained and now we just need to coach. We just need to let them do it. But, you know, with a little bit of extra help and it's realizing and, and being aware of those, that phases of the parenting journey for me. Yeah. And as they get older, giving them the language, because I know with mine who who are grownups, now I'll say to them, wait, do you need me to empathize or would you like to like, would you like feedback on solutions? Would you like to like brainstorm solutions? Like what, what is this discussion? And trying to give the language to them and saying, tell me what you want from me right now. How can I support you? In fact, sometimes I just ask that. How can, I, yeah. how can I support you? <laughs> I mean, that question works well with not just our kids, but with just about anybody, Yeah, right? I mean, that's a question I use a lot. Sometimes it's it's with my friends. Yeah, You know, it'll be with other parents where they're asking me, like, because of, of, of how visible I am as a single homeschooling, work-at-home mom, I go out in public and it's kind of obvious <laughs> that there's something a little different about this little family. I mean, it's not exactly <laughs> little, right? So we're, we're kind of visible and people will come up to me or they'll email me or they'll message me with a whole bunch of stuff. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it's just word vomit and I'm like, okay, <laughs> I get it. What do you need from me? Like, what do you want me to do? Did you just need to listen? Like need someone who gets it to listen? I can do that. Right. I can do that. I, you know, I can give you a safe place to kind of put it all out there, but I can't be your therapist. So, you know, if you need a referral to a therapist, I can do that. But how, how can I support you? And sometimes that kind of gets them out of it and they go, okay, no, what do I need help with? I'm actually going to be giving a talk in another couple of weeks at a summit on this topic where my journey through, through my divorce and through single parenting and figuring out how to find the support I needed. Yeah started with identifying exactly what it was I needed to put with. 
Well, so that's really interesting. And actually, I was going to ask you to talk a little bit about this because there has to be a piece of self-care. There has to be a time for self-reflection. And when you work for yourself and when you have six kids being there, running there, one's still a toddler, one is a full-on teenager, how do you find the sort of headspace or or, um, I know in ADHD, they say the spoons. How do you find the spoons to say everything has to let me take a recharge? So when they were really little, this was a little bit harder to do. And this is where I think um, where the the talk I'll be be giving is going to go into more detail on this. But the first step for me was to get really specific. What did I need right at that moment? Because you can't figure out how to get what you need if you don't know what you need. And yeah. sometimes when you're in the middle of it, identifying exactly what it is you needed can be a little bit difficult. I remember shortly after we moved to where I am now, I now have a nice five-bedroom uh, detached home in the kind of just outside of the urban core of Waterloo, Ontario. Mm. And uh, before we were, just after we moved here, and my kids were still pretty little, I remember crawling into bed one night, and it was another 1 a.m. morning, bedtime, Mm. and I remember crying because I was just exhausted. I was exhausted, and I was stressed, and I wasn't sure how I was going to do anything. And I just remember crying, I need help. And there was nobody there. There's just me. And I'm like, nobody is here to say anything. So, you know, think about this for a second. I started imagining stuff in my head. And I go, okay, if I could wave a magic wand and have just one thing done for me right this moment, what would that one thing be? Mm. And it dawned on me that if I got really specific, maybe I could get a couple of things done. And at that particular moment, laying on my bed in the dark, crying. I realized that one of the key things that was really stressing me out right at, right at that moment was the fact that my floors were so dirty, they were sticky. <laughs> it was driving me crazy that I did not have time to sit down, like to, you know, go on my hands and knees and wash them properly because yeah. I just didn't have time. Yeah. And and the spray mops and the, and the sweeping was not cutting it because I had little kids who were just continually making messes. So I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm awake anyways. I grabbed my phone and I started Googling um, house cleaners in my area found mm. a lovely lady who for 20 bucks would come in and do my floors for me I had $20 I could do that mm-hmm. that was affordable that was doable I left her a message the next morning she emails me emails me you have no idea how how impressive that was because most people would call you <laughs> and I'm a mom of kids and calling does not work so <laughs> she emailed me back it was fantastic and said yeah what time do you need me you know, it'll be cash. I'll come over and I'll do all your floors. So she came over, spent an hour, cleaned my floors till they gleamed. Aww. I spent an hour sitting on the couch doing nothing but staring at her doing my floors where I was actually sitting. I think I dozed off briefly, actually. <laughs> um, but that was kind of the dawning for me to realizing that if I wanted support, I had to get really specific yeah. about what I needed support with. And it's kind of grown from there. So as I learned to be specific about what I needed support with, I also learned that I needed to set boundaries. Mm-hmm. Some things I didn't want people doing for me. For example, a friend of mine 
I asked her to come over and help me sort clothes. And she was all set to go do laundry for me. And I'm like, no, no, no. Laundry, I find relaxing. So save that for me for later. Mm. Just help me sort the clothes. I had to set that boundary because this was self-care for me. Mm. And so, you know, identifying and then setting the boundary and then going from there in terms of getting a little bit bigger and imagining bigger, you know, and and sometimes again, that can be hard to do when you're in the middle of the mess and all you can see is the mess around you. It can be hard to look up and over and see that this mess is temporary. And just on the other side of it, as you plow your way through it, there's a little more free space. Yeah, in that question, and I did not learn this until reasonably, way too late, really, really recently. But the question of what's the barrier here, like, what's the speed bump that identifying what that speed and that there is a speed bump. And it's not just that all of life is terrible. It helps. I'm too young, I'm too old, I'm a single parent, I'm too poor, I'm not, all of that stuff. Those are, those aren't obstacles they're just challenges well and so often they're shame so often it's just like self-judgment and shame it's not if you can like if you can really like you said really go to a place where you can identify the thing and say well what would I do if that thing wasn't there yeah that is this whole possibility like it's an it's, it's almost like cracking open a totally different universe than the one you're in yes which yeah, is... it is. I mean, it, it opened up the idea that I mean, because the idea of hiring a cleaner was something that was actually shameful for me because mm. I had grown up with the idea that you clean up after yourself. Yeah. Right. I mean, you shouldn't have to, you know, only rich people pay for cleaners. Yeah. Because they're too lazy to do it themselves. Um, you know, us, us poor people where we work hard and, you know, you do it yourself because you know, why waste your money on that? not wasting money right this was the other thing that kind of framed it for me it wasn't just self-care it was actually a waste of my time and energy to clean my own house because my time was more valuable than that yeah and this comes from my experience as being an entrepreneur one of the things that I had to do really early on was to put a price point on my time oh interesting yeah. So if I had to put a price point on my time, then I started looking at all of my tasks mm. and I go, okay, what is the return on the investment of my time in this activity? Is that return worth my stated price point? And so I looked at simple things I hated doing, right? Yes. So sweeping and washing my floors was something I really hated doing. Then if my price point is an hour and I can spend 20 bucks on hiring somebody else to do it then it is not worth my time to do that myself out of some misplaced sense of pride yeah I should have the pride in the fact that my time is worth so much and outsource that to someone who is willing to say and then I kind of coached my original cleaner out of a job stop (laughs) working for me because I told her her time was worth more she goes you're right my time is worth more (laughs) <laughs> I ended up having to hire someone else. I'm still friends with her, actually. She's a, she's doing great because now she has a team that she hires out, and she hires college students who are working part time. Yeah, and have a limit on how much income they can get oh. in order to you know qualify for a student like for scholarships and stuff. So she hires, and it's perfect for them because they can choose their own hours. And I mean, 
it worked out really well. So I still hired, I mean, before COVID, I still hired a house cleaner. Because, like, again, what's my time worth? My time is not worth the time I am spending on cleaning my bathroom. My time is better spent in, you know. And then it, it helps me prioritize my tasks, too. Right. Right? I mean, again, what's important to you tells you where you spend your time. And if you say that some things are important to you, but they're your, that's not where you're spending your time, then they really aren't all that important to you. I, isn't that awful? Yeah, it's true and it's awful and it's true. Like where you spend your attention, your time, your money, your love, they actually, the, the closer you get those aligned, the better everything else is going to be. Because if you say, yeah, if you say you love something, but you spend no time on it. it it's it's not, not even about a love feeling it's about what you think is important and what you think is valuable and that can come from our past right yeah if you grew up like I did where having a particular kind of image in how your home was presented and how your yourself was presented and that was you were told that that was what was important but you don't necessarily value that yourself yeah but because you have those messages saying that that was what was important, you might spend time on things that you think are important, but not all that valuable. And they're not giving you joy and they're not giving you the return on your investment that you really want. And that's going to result in the resentment and the disappointment and the regrets and all of those yeah. negative feelings and all of that victim mentality that's going to hold you back. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. Someone this morning in a panel that I was on was talking about venting and I was like, be careful of that because it is so easy to get enough relief from that, that you keep doing what you're doing. And it should be a massive red flag that you need to pull away and reorient. And I know this because I spent years there where I had, you know, that was kind of my only relief was venting. And it does make you sort of end up in a victim spiral where you just sort of put up with it, you know, moan about it, put up with it. <laughs> get we, get, we get addicted to drama, right? Yeah. I mean, we get that, that chemical feedback in our brains and we get addicted to the drama. Yeah. And uh, so then it can be hard to adjust to living without the drama because then you start self-sabotaging and causing it yourself and well until something massive happens and all of a sudden you're really sick of drama <laughs> yeah yeah Sometimes that's what it takes well but you want to get there before the massive thing has to happen to get you out of it. it it really is about just making a choice it is it's really interesting because my mother had a pattern of I used to call her an arsonist because and I've worked with people like this too Everything has to be on fire so that they feel competent and get that, not just the hit of the drama, but the hit of competence cleaning up after a fire that they set. And, you know, it, was, it took it's that whole, can't tell a fish about water again. It, it took a while to go like, oh, this is optional. <laughs> this is, I mean, it really does come down to recognizing the fact that you have a choice. Right. Yeah. I tell this is again, this is one of those things I tell my kids all the time. Make good choices. Make better choices. You have a choice. Yeah. You can't control your feelings. How you feel is how you feel. You can and you can't always control your reactions, but you can choose your responses. Yes. 
Yes. And sometimes it's really a case of were you reacting in that moment or were you responding and which would you rather be doing? Yeah. And as much as I'm parenting my kids, a lot of the times I'm reminding myself of the same thing. I mean, we learn so much from our kids, right? We learn so much. Oh, yeah. So it really is just about recognizing when you're making a choice and owning it. There are times I will still react, but this time I'm reacting and I'm owning the fact that I'm reacting and I'm like, you know what? That was kind of a bad choice. Yeah. Maybe it needs to better one next time. I remember hearing this and it was a martial arts thing, but it was refrain until you can respond without reacting. It was they were like, these are the other three R's. <laughs> these are the ones that really are R's. And and I remember thinking, that's super useful for me. Like that's like a back pocket thing for me is so to me, is to stop and to, ask. I had to start before that. Mm. I couldn't because sometimes you I couldn't refrain. Like I couldn't I didn't have the control at that point. Mm to stop myself from reacting. What I needed to do was start recognizing. Oh, another R. It was a choice, right? Yeah. Yeah. And when I could recognize that what I was doing with was a choice and own that, take responsibility for that. There's your another R. (laughs) Recognize and and, and take responsibility for my choices. That's when I could start making changes to that. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it comes back to identifying what's the problem here. And it really does come back to identifying and getting really, really specific about what the issue is. Yeah. It doesn't matter what the issue is. This process works with everything. I mean, ask me how I know. <laughs> it works with how do you know? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because one of the things that I remember this being very tied up in, you were right about the idea of um, it can be distracting to have a second parent. And I had a realization after over a decade that I hadn't been sleeping through the night in as long as I could remember. And when we solved that, which involved a CPAP machine for uh, my then spouse, all of these things were suddenly like they were available to me in a way. For example, that idea of responding or taking responsibility for it. I had a very big lag time for a long time where I'd react and not have not even recognize that I had reacted for, you know, a, a chunk of time, be it 15 minutes or an hour and be like, that was out of, outsized. And it was because I had, you know, a physical thing stopping me. I just didn't realize I had had so little sleep for so long that I wasn't, I wasn't functioning properly. And that's another piece where you're like, wow, this, this, it's another piece where I was like later, that's a, that's a massive red flag. There's a great quote from a cartoon that says, the thing about rosy colored glasses is all the red flags just look like flags. felt like that with that one that's really true yeah (laughs) felt like it took me a while to be like oh it's bad that I don't sleep (laughs) yeah and I mean sometimes it really is that basic right yeah it's one of the things that I made sure when I created I mean I'm a planner junkie time management and productivity are a huge thing with me because I have to be on top of everything Right. right Right. There is because there is nobody else to pick up. They pick up any slack, so there can't be any slack. It has to be me. 
Um, so I created my own planning system again over years, and it's now available on my blog. I have um, actually have two versions. I have a homeschool mom version. And I have a work at home mom version oh, cool. of my planner. And included in them is this little self-care check-in. The top questions that are on there is, when was the last time I drank water? Mm. Did I have enough sleep last night? Yeah. And when was the last time I ate something that wasn't junk food? I call those the three questions. I, I started asking right? them with my teens when we fought. I started saying, wait, wait, before we say another word, we both have to answer this. Right. And if the, I this. Yeah, and if the Before answer I is say anything to my my grumpy teen, I throw a snack at her. That's exactly it. And if any of these has a no, I used to be like, We are gonna take this book and we are gonna write down what this fight is about. And we will come back to it as soon as we've taken care of whatever's wrong. <laughs> like, right? It was so Sometimes great. You can't be rational yeah. if you are hangry or if your body is needing something. And even if you've answered the basic three, sometimes there's some, you know, there's like another step to this. My mm -hmm. other, my next three questions were, okay, you know, when was the last time I had a shower? Mm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, and I mean, because washing your face and brushing your teeth doesn't mean you're clean. <laughs> so, <laughs> and taking a shower can help you reset, even if it was this morning, but you just need one. Five minutes because. I'm, something my grandmother told me when my kids were little, she had five children too, kind of one after the other. And so she gave me advice really early on. It was like the one thing, if you, if you have a grumpy kid, throw, throw them in some water. It'll help. Yeah. I mean, and it does. <laughs> you've got a grumpy kid that doesn't want to take a nap, tell them to take a bath. You've got a grumpy kid that feels like they're too old to take a bath and they've been fed, tell them to take a shower. You have no <laughs> idea. I tell my teen all the time, go, I mean, if you've had a snack, go hit the showers because your mood still needs to be fit here. <laughs> and honestly, you throw water at a, at a child and there's something about water that, that, there's something about water and human beings and it resets us. Emotionally. I love that phrasing. I really do. Saying just throw water at them. It works. It works. Right? And it I love works. it so much. <laughs> so yeah. It's when was the last time you got clean? It yeah. was um, when was the last time you connected with someone? Just oh, to I say, like, like that. Another adult, just to say hi. Yeah. Right? And then it was when did you connect with someone who actually means something to you? Mm. You know, and the two are different. And the reason they're different is sometimes just seeing another face can be enough to give us a little bit of a refresh yeah because I mean even pre-COVID when you're a mom of little kids going out anywhere is a big deal yeah I tell people all the time I'm the lazy parent I, I took the lazy <laughs> parents route to homeschooling uh, and it, it really is true I live in Canada and at one point I had four children under five <laughs> and somebody would tell me I I got this repeatedly somebody would tell me why don't you put your oldest in school it'll make life easier for you and I just stared at them and I go I think that through for a second, would you? <laughs> I, and then I kind of just nicely tried to explain that it took me 45 minutes to get four children into enough snowsuits that we could go outside, <laughs> just to go outside. And they were thinking that doing this, and I mean, 45 minutes to go out and 45 minutes again to come back in. Yeah. Okay. And they were thinking that doing that twice a day to put right. one child on a school bus 
Right. You can't I leave the littlest ones. Them. Yeah. Oh, what was I supposed to do with the baby when I have to, you know, I can't not take her with me. Right. So to walk the block, I would have to put four children into their snow stuff, into a stroller where there's no sidewalk. So I have two kids in a double stroller, the toddler's walking beside me and I'm wearing the baby to put the oldest who has her own backpack and her own snow stuff. Finding all of her stuff. I mean, anybody who is a public school parent knows the rush, right? Yeah. So packing the lunches and finding the stuff and make sure there's a homework and making sure the school forms are signed and making sure she has her indoor shoes and making sure she has a change of clothes because it's winter and they're going to get wet. Making sure she has a change of mittens and a change of socks and, you know, all the stuff that goes into putting a child in school, right? Yeah. Just the thought of it's exhausting. Just the thought of it. <laughs> I looked at them with, I mean, honestly, I must have looked like a deer in headlights. And when I simply said, think that through for a second and I looked at the babies and they looked at me and they go oh <laughs> and that was all they said and that was honestly that was the last time I ever heard anything about it because they just went oh <laughs> <laughs> and so I tell people I said I, I could not figure out the logistics of putting a kid in school when I had four babies at home and by the time the four babies were old enough to all go to school it didn't make sense anymore because we were thriving. Yeah. And why change what's not broken? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Sarah, this has been such a delightful conversation. I would really love to chat with you again sometime. Thank you for being Absolutely. on the show. No problem. That's it for this week's 9 to Thrive podcast. Be sure to visit working9tothrive.com, that's with the number 9, to access show notes, find resources, and join the conversation. Thanks for listening.